As we read today's passage, let's pray for God to humble our hearts so that we may hear, receive, and live out God's word. So if you would please stand with me as we read through Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We pray for us once more. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to take the word that has just been read and now through the preaching of it, may you apply it deeply and truly in our hearts. We pray that we may come away changed, transformed, conformed more into the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I think there's no question that this pandemic experience has changed our normal behaviors and reshaped established practices in our lives. In my opinion, one of the more tragic changes is the fact that we have much less frequently had people over in our homes during the course of this pandemic. That means one of the most important ministries in the life of a local church has been greatly hindered. I'm talking about the ministry of hospitality, of welcoming people into your personal space, whether that be your home or your apartment or your dorm room. It's about welcoming welcoming people in such a way that strangers end up feeling like neighbors and friends start feeling like family. That's hospitality. That's the ministry I'm talking about. Now, in many cultures like ours, hospitality often revolves around a shared meal, around sharing table fellowship, where you're not just giving your guests food, you are giving them fellowship. You're giving them friendship and acceptance and love. That is why it's more than just a meal. It's ministry. But of course, during this pandemic, there has been good reasons why many of you are hesitant to have guests over, not knowing their vaccination status, knowing that at some point you're going to be unmasked while you're eating. Perhaps you have unvaccinated children in the home. And so those are reasonable factors for why many of us who pre-pandemic would frequently open up our homes to host and to entertain have significantly cut back on this practice in the past 18 months. But that's a tragic outcome and one that I hope we can address more directly. You know, when this series was planned uh, back in the spring, I, I, I totally thought we'd be in a better place by now. The plan was to issue a challenge 
for all of us to recover this ministry of hospitality and to begin opening up our homes to each other once again. I didn't think we'd still be in the red zone. But even so, I, I still want to issue this challenge to you in this way. Even though I, I know we have varying degrees of caution and, and comfort levels when it comes to COVID. So that means the how and the when for each of you and how you're going to recover this practice is going to differ. But since showing hospitality is commanded of Christians in Scripture, I think it's still appropriate to bind your consciences on this matter by reminding you that this is your biblical responsibility. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So church, let us not neglect our responsibility to show hospitality, even in the midst of a pandemic. Now, our goal in this new sermon series is to look more closely at the various episodes in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus shared a meal with others. That's why we're calling this Meals with Jesus. We want to learn from his practice of sharing table fellowship, which I'm telling you, it's going to be convicting as we go into this series because Jesus directly challenged religious norms and he transgressed social boundaries. He was more than willing to eat a meal with the social and moral outcasts of society. Commentators on the Gospel of Luke have often noted that meals with Jesus, they really function as a plot device to, to, to give us more character development. You see, by observing whom Jesus was willing to eat with, we learn so much about him. At the same time, we learn so much about ourselves and how sadly we often, and our attitude often, resembles that of the antagonists in these stories. You see, the Pharisees, the antagonists, well, they were extremely cautious about cleanliness and purity. And they were concerned not just with purity of the food on the table, but, but the purity of the persons around the table. They refused to share a meal with certain kinds of people because they were afraid of contamination, of being exposed to a certain kind of impurity that would make them unclean. Well, that's pretty convicting if you think about it. Because nowadays, we're the ones who are extremely cautious about cleanliness and contamination to the point that we are extremely reluctant to share a meal with certain kinds of people. I'll be honest. When I saw how my next door neighbors would interact with each other during the peak of the pandemic, how they were just hanging out with one, one another without any masks, no social distancing, acting as if there was no pandemic going on. It made me and my family very reluctant to have them over. And when they would invite us over to, to their parties, which they did frequently, we would just respectfully decline and come up with some excuse for why we're busy. But the real reason is because we didn't want to be around them for fear of catching COVID. Now, again, 
I, I agree with the need for proper precautions when pandemic conditions are severe. I'm all for that. But friends, at the same time, I know my wicked heart. And I know my reluctance to draw near towards those who have a different opinion on, on matters like, like vaccines or masks. That's really just a symptom of a deeper heart problem. Because even before the pandemic, I need to ask myself, and, and you need to ask yourself, were we already excluding certain people from our table fellowship? I mean, if we were just to look back and to picture who sat around our table pre-pandemic, who, who shared a meal with us in our personal spaces, was there a very limited kind of person present? Were, were there people around your table that shared a very different faith or that, that shared a very different political view or a very different set of lifestyle choices or, or just a different ethnicity or cultural background? With whom do we typically practice hospitality? And does our practice resemble more of Jesus' practice or the Pharisees? That's the key question. That's what I want us to wrestle with. So this morning as we study Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, I, I want to help you to hear the call of Christ, to reflect the heart of Christ, and commit yourself once more to the mission of Christ. So first, we're going to see the call of Christ. And if you want to follow along in your bulletin, there's an outline. We're going to see the call of Christ is a call to leave everything and to follow him. Second, the heart of Christ, the heart of Christ is, to, is, a, is a desire to go out from our inner circles to fellowship with the outsider. And third, the mission of Christ is to heal sinners by calling them to repentance. So that's where we're going to be going in our message today. Let's begin by considering the call of Christ, a call to leave everything and follow him. Now, our passage is about the call of Levi in particular. Jesus calls him to be one of his followers, one of his 12 disciples in particular. Now, Levi is an alias for Matthew, who's better known as the, gospel, as the author of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's, that's the same person we're talking about here. Now let's, let's look back at the context around our passage to, to, to kind of gauge where we're at. Now if you look in chapter 5, in the very beginning, that's where Jesus begins calling disciples to follow him. And the first set of disciples that he calls are Galilean fishermen, Peter, James, and John. Now, at this point, it's not surprising that Jesus would surround himself with such men because fishermen were, were, were representative of the Jewish populace. They were, they were just your common uh, everyman, and so it makes sense that he would call uh, them to follow. But then as chapter 5 continues, Jesus engages with those on the outsider, those on the margins of society. He first encounters a man with leprosy and then a man who was lame, so these, my friends, are the diseased and the disabled. They're, they're weak and they're broken physically. And Jesus does care for them in that way. He heals their physical condition. But you're going to see that he is much more concerned with their spiritual condition. 
He tells the healed leper to go show himself to the priest so that he might be restored back into the faith community. He assures the lame man that not only are his legs healed, but his sins are forgiven. And so from the context surrounding our particular passage, we see Jesus calling people to follow him, and and we see him healing people, not just physically, but spiritually. So starting in verse 27, Jesus calls into his circle a social and moral outsider. Let me read verse 27 again. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, friends, in those days, tax collectors were fellow Jews who worked for the Roman government collecting taxes from their own kinsmen on behalf of an oppressive empire that had subjugated them. And so that's why these tax collectors were viewed by their neighbors as traitors. And not only that, tax collectors had a bad reputation of skimming off the top, of of profiting off the backs of their own people. And so not only were they traitors, they were extortionists. That, my friends, is why the phrase tax collectors and sinners became such a common catchphrase to describe generally the the, the cheats and scoundrels of society that decent religious people would do well to avoid. It was just a known phrase, tax collectors and sinners. Those are the bad people. Now, of course, it's natural at this point to wonder, well, that's in those days, but what about today? Who might be a modern equivalent of a tax collector today? I I know that's a question that might be on your mind, and I I thought a lot about this, and, and, and honestly, I found it difficult to pinpoint one group in our society that would be clearly viewed as the outsider. You know, within a more insulated Jewish community of Jesus's day, Yeah, there was more of a general consensus on who was an insider and who was an outsider, but I don't find that to be the case in our society anymore. Now, it's not because we've matured and we're past the point of labeling people and excluding people. No, of course, we're still doing all that, but the thing is is that we are so polarized as a people today. We, We are so divided that there is no consensus anymore on who's in and who's out. We each have our own tribes, and we end up labeling and demonizing and excluding everyone else. And so that means everyone is on the outside of each other, and yet everyone is self assured that, that we're one of the insiders. And so, if you're a Democrat, then the tax collector is a Republican, or vice versa. If, if you're conservative, then the tax collector is a liberal, is, is a progressive. If, if you're pro-vaccine and, and pro-mask, then the tax collector is anti-mask and, and, and anti-vax, or, or vice versa. If you're pro-individual rights, then the tax collector is anyone who supports all of these government mandates and restrictions. The point I'm trying to make here is that you and I may not agree on who is a tax collector today, but the reality is, is that both of us would be viewed as a tax collector in somebody's eyes. So at least we share that in common. We're all a tax collector to somebody today. And guess what? That means all of us can identify with this tax collector in the text. All of us are Levi in someone else's eyes. But what's infinitely more important 
is not how other people view us, but ultimately how we are viewed in Christ's eyes, which is the same way that he viewed Levi, not as a tax collector, not as the world viewed him, but Jesus viewed him as a prospective follower, as someone he is calling to follow him. And that's how Christ views all of us, as either present followers or prospective followers. He is calling us all. Now let's look back at verse 28 and and see how the call to follow Jesus is no small matter. It's a call to leave everything. Look at verse 28. And leaving everything, he, Levi, rose and followed him. Now in his case, Levi left his profession as a tax collector and began full-time following Jesus as a disciple. And you have to realize that was a decision that he could never take back. Now, Peter, James, and John, on the other hand, could always return to fishing if following Jesus didn't work out. And and in fact, they did just that at the end of John's gospel. They had returned to their old profession as fishermen before Jesus reappeared to them and, and called them back on mission. But for Levi... At this moment, there is no going back. If you suddenly drop everything and you abandon your tax booth to go and follow Jesus, you can just kiss your profession as a Roman tax collector goodbye. You're not getting hired back. You completely left your job behind. Now, for Levi to follow Jesus, he personally realized that he himself could no longer work as a tax collector because he was now committed to leaving behind all of his former sins. But because in his estimation, those sins were so intertwined and entangled with his profession that he felt like, like following Jesus meant leaving all of it behind. But that wasn't the case for all tax collectors. A life aimed at pleasing the Lord did not require all Roman tax collectors to quit their jobs. Back in an earlier chapter, in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, it records this incident where a group of tax collectors, they come to John the Baptist for a baptism of repentance, and they ask him, teacher, what shall we do? If we're going to get baptized for repentance... What does that mean? What should we do now? And his response to them wasn't, you better quit your job. You can't be a tax collector anymore. No. John told them, do your job with integrity. He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Do your job well. Don't cheat. Don't extort. That's what he says. So not every Christian tax collector left the profession, which should then give us pause should give anyone who feels that faithfulness to follow Christ necessitates a career change, career change for you, should give you pause. Maybe, maybe you should change your career, but maybe not. And I know some of you feel like your job is a distraction to your faith, that it's a source of temptation for you, or, or it just feels like a waste of time in light of eternal realities. But before you conclude that faithfulness to Christ necessitates a career change, just ask yourself the following questions. First, ask yourself, does your profession require you to perform work 
that's illegal? Because this one should be quite obvious. If your profession requires you to, you know, deal drugs or to extort people or to help people evade taxes, if your work involves you in some way with illegal activity, then it's a definite yes. A call to follow Jesus would definitely mean leaving behind that profession. But, you know, that question doesn't really go far enough. Second, you have to ask yourself, does your profession require you to perform work that's forbidden by God's word? Because just, something, just, just because something is legal doesn't make it moral according to God's word. Let's just consider abortion. It's been in the news this past week. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, talking about this recent bill that was passed by the Texas legislature. And even after the passing of this bill, prohibiting abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, you do know that being an abortionist or working in an abortion clinic is still legal according to the law of the land, but the law of the Lord would say otherwise. And so that means not every legal profession out there is permitted for those of us who are seeking to faithfully follow Christ. So that's another factor to consider. But third, ask yourself this question. Does your job place you in an environment where you are likely to be tempted or pressured into ungodly habits or behaviors? Does your job put you in a situation where you're likely to be tempted or pressured into ungodly habits or behaviors? And I think that's the question that convicted Levi. And he answered yes to this question. This job puts me in in an environment where I am just too tempted, I am too pressured to fall back into ungodly habits and behaviors. I personally need to quit. But the thing is, is that not every tax collector answered that question that way. They, they may not feel the same pressure or the same temptations. So friends, I, I'm just trying to help you to think about some principles, some questions to be asking yourself if you are wrestling with this kind of a question, if you are wrestling with the question of if faithfulness to follow Jesus necessitates you to make a career change. But regardless, friends, if you're actually facing that decision to leave your job or not, Regardless, what is common to all of us is that those who are called to Christ are called to leave behind all of our old identities and allegiances. It may not be our our profession, but definitely it means leaving behind our old identities and allegiances. And so that means regardless of, of what you do for work, following Jesus is now your primary vocation. Regardless of your political leanings, regardless of your theological tribe, follower of Jesus is now your primary identity. And regardless of how much you you value your ethnic or cultural heritage, regardless of how much you love your country or you love your family, your primary allegiance is now to Jesus and his band of followers. That's fundamentally what it means to leave everything behind and to follow him. So we just looked at the call of Christ. Now, friends, let's consider the heart of Christ. If we continue on in verse 29, we're going to see that the heart of Christ is to go out and to, and to fellowship 
with outsiders. Now, let's not, let's not draw faulty conclusions here. Jesus is not against developing deep community. He's not against creating inner circles where you grow deeper with a small group of people. Obviously, that's why he called the 12 disciples to follow him, and he spent so much time just with them. But at the same time, Jesus would often step out of his circle of insiders to fellowship with outsiders with the ultimate goal of expanding his circle to make them insiders as well. We see an example of this in verse 29. We're told that Levi's first response after meeting Jesus and becoming a follower was to practice hospitality. Isn't that amazing? That's the first response to following Jesus, the ministry of hospitality. And so he made, it says, for Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And Jesus enjoyed the company, and they enjoyed him. But the Pharisees, well, the Pharisees grumbled. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the big contrast here in this passage is between Jesus and the Pharisees and their vastly different approach when it comes to sinners. Bottom line, the Pharisees sought to avoid sinners while Jesus sought to be around them. Jesus challenged the religious norms of his day by his willingness to share table fellowship with those who are generally considered to be deplorable sinners. And that is exactly what aggravated the Pharisees. You know, they, they wouldn't have cared if Jesus showed some mercy and if he fed some hungry sinners on the street. They, they, they probably would have applauded him for that. Their problem is not with showing mercy to sinners, but with sharing table fellowship with them. Because in their culture, in their culture, to share table fellowship is to extend friendship. To share table fellowship is to express acceptance and to exhibit unity with the person across the table. So your willingness to sit at a table and to share a meal with someone speaks volumes. That, my friends, is why, for example, the Apostle Paul felt that it was so necessary to publicly confront a fellow apostle when Peter refused table fellowship with Gentile Christians. We read about this in Galatians chapter 2. It recalls this time when, when they were in Antioch together, when Peter withdrew table fellowship from Gentile believers once members of the Jewish circumcision party showed up in town. And Paul was simply appalled by that action because to refuse fellowship around the dinner table is tantamount to refusing fellowship around the communion table. It's, it's saying we're no longer family. We are no longer part of the same covenant community. That Galatians 2 incident demonstrates why it was such a big deal. It was scandalous even for Jesus to attend this great feast put on by Levi at his house. His willingness to share a meal with them communicated a willingness to call sinners his friend, to call sinners family. Now, 
Notice how in this case, Jesus is not technically practicing hospitality because he's not actually inviting sinners to his house. He's, 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 um, he's not calling them over to his sanitized personal space and expecting them that when you get here, you better clean up and you better behave properly. Now notice how he is more than willing to go to them, to where sinners live, to where they hang out. He attends their dinner parties. He participates in their activities. He joins their gatherings. He goes out to them because there's little chance that they're going to step foot into a gathering of the faithful. Church, please don't be offended when non-Christians don't like attending our gatherings. Don't be surprised by that. They don't have the Spirit of God in them, so you wouldn't expect them to have a taste of the things of heaven. Now, I'm I'm sure you know some non-Christians who are spiritually curious, and they are open to learn, and, and, and that really is just evidence of the Spirit doing a work in their hearts. But for the most part, and I think you know this by experience, Most non-believers don't want to spend their time in Bible study, singing praise songs, listening to someone preach, or, or going around a circle sharing struggles and praying for the person on your left. That's not their idea of, you know, an exciting Friday night. If you want to build significant relationships with the non-Christians in your life, then you need to be willing to enter into their spaces to feast with them, even if the company that they keep and the conversation that they carry can be a bit worldly and, and ungodly at times. That, my friends, is the challenge that each of us face. To go where sinners are in the world without adopting the tastes of the world. That's the challenge. To go where sinners are in the world without adopting the tastes of the world. In that sense, if you think about it, every follower of Jesus is a missionary sent into the world to navigate foreign spaces, bringing the word of Christ with them, and all the while trying to maintain a faithful Christian witness. That's what a missionary does. That's what all of us are called to do. You know, as a pastor, I'm obviously encouraged when members participate in and and they serve in all the various ministries of our church. Of course, that makes me happy. But let me just say this right up front in front of all of you. If the activities of the church are taking up so much of your time and keeping you from going out and fellowshipping with outsiders, then please feel free to say no to any more church-related activities. That is, if your goal is to get involved in the lives of your non-Christian friends and colleagues, if that's your purpose, oh, that's going to make me even, me even happier. But here's a warning. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you have the same fortitude and the same degree of self-control as Jesus to be in the world without adopting the tastes of the world. So please be aware of your own limitations and weaknesses. Know your limits. So for example, if, 
If you know you are prone to excessive drinking and drunkenness, then of course it's not going to be wise for you to go to a feast or go to a party where social drinking of alcohol is the primary activity. That's, that's something you should, you should avoid. Know your limits. But at the same time, at the same time, know your purpose. You should be participating in these activities in order to be a good friend and to bring Christ with you wherever you go. Don't use this kind of missionary activity really as just an excuse to sin, as an excuse to do things that you've always kind of wanted to do, and now you have a sanctified reason for it. Which, of course, leads to a third exhortation. Know your identity in Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ entrusted with the Lord's message of reconciliation. So when, when you're in the world and when you are surrounded by all of these voices and all of these messages that are being promoted by the world, it is easy to lose yourself. It is easy to forget your purpose. So yes, make it your aim to reflect the heart of Christ, to be around sinners and to be with sinners, but don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't forget your identity. And friends, this leads us to our third and final consideration. We've looked at the call of Christ, the heart of Christ. Now let's consider the mission of Christ. His mission, his vocation, his reason for coming was to heal sinners by calling them to repentance. That's what he came to do. If you understand, my friends, that that is Jesus' mission, that's his vocation, that's his job, well, then it makes complete sense that he would surround himself with tax collectors and sinners. There's really nothing scandalous about, about that if that's his job. Just think about it. Would you be shocked to meet a doctor who surrounds herself with sick people? Would it be considered scandalous if she enjoyed spending time with patients? Of course not because you would consider her actually a good doctor if she felt that way. A doctor who has a clear sense of her mission in life. And that same could be said of Christ. He had a clear sense of his mission in life. He knew his vocation. He understood his calling as a physician. Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, they're the ones who need the physician. So Jesus self-consciously saw himself as a doctor. Just like how many of you in this room are doctors. I, I think this pandemic has helpfully clarified the heart and the mission of physicians and, and their brave and noble tasks that they take on. You know, while the rest of us in these past 18 months have been doing all that we can to avoid people with COVID, physicians, nurses, and other medical practitioners have been purposely drawing near to patients with COVID to bring healing and wholeness. In the same way, the Pharisees and most Jews back then did all they could to avoid sinners, while the great physician purposefully drew near to those who were spiritually sick with sin. And just like a good doctor who has good bedside manners, who's comfortable around sick people and sick people are comfortable around him, Jesus, in the same way, 
is comfortable around sinners. And sinners are comfortable around Jesus. Because somehow he is able, he's able to express acceptance of the person without acceptance of the sinful behavior. He, he doesn't hold sinners at an arm's length waiting for them to clean up their act first. And yet, neither does he turn a blind eye to their sin. Jesus accepts sinners just the way they are, but he loves them too much to leave them that way. Let me say that again. Jesus will accept you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He's going to call you to repentance. That's what he says in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, now verse 32 is not in any way implying that the Pharisees are righteous and have no need of the great physician. No, the righteous in this case refer to the well in verse 31, which refers to those who assure themselves that they're healthy, and so they think that they have no need for a physician. And so in the same way, if you're self-assured that you are righteous before God, then of course you're not going to think you have a need for a Savior. You're going to have no need for Jesus. But according to Scripture, everyone is sick. Everyone needs Jesus. We live in a Genesis 3 world where all of creation is under the curse of sin, and that includes each of us. That means we are not just people who commit sins. We are sinners. That's who we are now. Our very nature has been corrupted. The moral trajectory of our heart is bent towards self-rule and selfishness. But of course, the good news of the gospel is that the great physician is also the great redeemer who died in our place on the cross to not only cleanse our hearts, to forgive our sins, but to change our hearts altogether, to grant us repentance, to bend our moral trajectory all the way to the other direction, now towards him and towards his righteousness. That's what repentance is. That's why Jesus came to call sinners, not just to follow, but notice it says he came to call them first to repentance. To repent means simply to turn. So before you can follow Jesus, you have to repent. You have to turn around from the direction you have been going and to go a brand new one towards him. Now, unlike the Pharisees, I, I think many people today would probably applaud Jesus for his willingness to, to come near sinners, to, to, to draw around them. But they'll probably take offense at all of this talk of repentance. Like they, they, they have no problem with Jesus being with the people but why is he talking about repentance? That sounds like making people feel guilty, pressuring them to change the way that they're living their lives. That just sounds too condemning, too, too judgmental. Well, we just have to go back to this physician metaphor, and I think it's going to make more sense. I, I think you would agree with me that a good doctor is one who listens, one who shows compassion and care, but 
if you, let's face it, if you have high cholesterol, if you have a family history of heart disease, and if you're not exercising or eating healthy, then a good doctor is not going to just listen and then affirm behavior that's detrimental to your health. If it's a good doctor, that doctor is going to call you to repentance, to change, to change your diet, to change your lifestyle, to exercise more, snack less. He's going to call you to repent. So friends, the great physician is likewise compassionate and caring, but in the same way, he won't affirm sinful behavior that is detrimental to your soul. He won't turn a blind eye. He's going to call you to repentance. Now, unfortunately, when many people hear that word repentance, it sounds like it's saying you need to clean up your life first. It sounds like you have to get your act together. It sounds like you have to do all of this self-improvement before you're ready to follow Jesus. But that would be wrong. That's not what it means. All repentance requires is for you to admit that you are sick and that you need the healing that only the great physician can bring. This week I was reflecting on the lyrics of the old hymn, Come Sinners. And the third stanza really fits our text quite well. It goes like this. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. And then in the fourth stanza, it speaks as to what is required of those whom Jesus calls to follow. And it says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. That's all he requires of you. To simply know that you are sick and to trust that only he can heal you. Let me put it this way, friends. You don't have to change your life before you're ready to come and follow Jesus. But you better be ready for your life to completely change. That's what repentance means. And that's what the gospel promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this passage. A picture of Jesus and his element doing ministry the ministry of hospitality, of sharing a meal, of table fellowship. Lord, it is so instructive to our souls and to our lives as we reflect on how we might emulate Christ and his heart and his mission as we are sent from this place today. Oh God, thank you for your son Jesus and his great love for us. Though we be sinners, Christ died for us, and Christ calls us to follow him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.